Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. If you're using the, uh, the scriptures that are provided Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned but have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send your greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. To the Lord. Philippians chapter 4. Did you notice when Lane was reading verse 11, where Paul says, the writer of this letter says to us, just as he said to the people of Philippi, I have learned... The secret of being content in any and every situation. Where does that confront you this morning as you hear it? I've learned the secret of being content. How might the Holy Spirit be using that verse, even as I speak, to expose something in your life that you're struggling with in order to accept something that you struggle with on a regular basis that prevents you from being a content person. We're going to see this morning how God can take this passage of Scripture and produce something supernatural in you and in me, something called contentment. I'll be honest. We are, by and large, a discontented people. I am, I suspect many of you are as well. One reason that we are discontented is that we live in a discontented culture. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because as we look around us, as we even look within our own hearts, many of us are anxious and worried much of the time. Many of us covet things that other people have. We're not thankful for the things that we do have. The car that has 150,000 miles on it, the house that's not as new and bright and shiny as the neighbor's house, 
the body that's not as trim as it used to be, the child that makes B's and C's, maybe D's instead of A's. There's a restlessness about us, many of us. We think we need something bigger, better, faster, newer most of the time. Why are we that way? Why is there a restlessness within our souls when in fact God has showered us with so many blessings? Well, part of the reason we struggle with contentment is that we inherited a discontented, restless spirit from our great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. We lost contentment in the Garden of Eden. We are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. You remember the first sin? Here's Satan holding out the forbidden fruit. And actually, what was doing in Eve's heart was causing her to want something that she didn't already have. There was a discontentment already that led her and led Adam to disobey God's law. And we've been struggling with contentment ever since, struggling to find it and not doing a very good job of it either. Springsteen was right. Everybody's got a hungry heart. John D. Rockefeller, you might, say, you might have heard this, he said famously one time when someone asked him, how much money do you need? How much money would it take to make you happy? And he said, just a little bit more. And that attitude is so true of so many of us as God's people. Just a little bit more, just this, I'll be happy. Just that, I'll be happy. If I got this, if I had that, if I had this experience, or if I wasn't this way, or what have you. So we're going to talk about contentment. It's a quietness of soul. That's what contentment is. It's a satisfied outlook on the life that you've been given, the lot in life that God has given to you. It's a deep sense of peace and rest regardless of what's going on inside you or around you. The word content there in verse 11, it literally means to have enough. To have this feeling that you you have enough. It's a sense of, of having a sufficiency. It's to be satisfied with your circumstances. Who you are, where you live, what you have. And Paul says that that's what he has. He says, I have learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. I need that. And I feel sure that you do as well. Let's do this this morning. I'm going to show you three things from this passage. The first two are going to be very brief. I want to deal mostly with the third one, okay? But three things that I see in this passage. Number one, contentment is born out of adversity. Second, it's nursed in community. And third, it's sustained by the sovereignty of God. Okay, so it's born in out of adversity, nursed in community, and sustained or strengthened by the sovereignty of God. Let's talk first about it's born of adversity. Contentment comes out of hardship. God uses suffering to create contentment in us over time. Look at verse 12 where Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
See, contentment is something you have to learn through hardship and through loss. Oh, how I wish I could tell you that it would be learned another way. How I wish I could tell you that there was a formula for learning contentment. Or there's a book you read and suddenly you're changed into a contented person. And I can't do that because contentment is instead not natural to us. It's alien to us and we must learn it through the crucible of adversity. Paul's life is proof of that. Paul, if you read the autobiographical sections of his letters and of the book of Acts, you'll see that, that Paul suffered a lot throughout his life. And where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Well, as we've learned in this series, he was writing this letter from Roman prison. He was far away from his home, from everything familiar, from his friends, separated from his family. At one time in the past, he had power. He had prestige, he had respect, he had friends, he had freedom, he had possessions, he had safety. But now what has he got? Now he has none of those things. They've all been removed from him. He's chained to a Roman guard all the time. He doesn't know what's around the corner. He could be set free. He could be executed the next moment for all he knows. Where is Paul? He is in the classroom of life, learning the secret of being content. Some of you this morning are in that classroom. Some of you are learning contentment through hardship. And I suspect that some of you don't feel that it's contributing anything to your life. It's simply taking it away. It seems so hard. You wonder, how can God be just to give me this? I can't deal with this anymore. You don't think you're in much of a classroom. You think you're in hell. God loves you. He does. And He is shaping you through hardship into a person who can find something supernatural, a contentment that doesn't depend on things going well. And isn't that a good fruit? Isn't that good, strong fruit? Yeah, it is. So continue, please, to let God lead you in and through that classroom. He is with you. Contentment then is born of adversity. Secondly, it's nursed, if we could use that analogy, it's nursed in community. I want you to notice in this passage, if you didn't already, that Paul values his friends in Philippi. He sees great value in community and he knows that his contentment is partially due to the love of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the fact that his friends in Philippi had sent him again and again care packages. He talks about that in verse 16. He says, again and again, you sent me aid when I was in need in Thessalonica. So Paul has received love gifts from his friends in Philippi and he wants to go on and continue to give thanks for that care in this passage. And he's not complaining there in verse 10. Don't misread that verse. He's not complaining when he says, at last you've renewed your concern for me. That's not really what the sense of that is. Instead, he's simply saying that it's been a while since he heard from his Philippian friends and now that he's in prison... Lo and behold, they sent him yet another care package. 
And he goes on to thank them for their generosity. He says in verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Notice that word share. It's a Greek word that many of you know, the Greek word quanonia. It means fellowship or partnership. So what Paul is saying is that I'm so thankful that you have shared with me in my affliction. I'm so glad that I don't have to go through this alone. I have your love, your care to strengthen me during this time of trial. We need one another. We need one another. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Many of the Christian songs that are popular these days say things like, that are wrong. They say things like, Jesus, you're all I need. It communicates the message that it's just me and Jesus. That's all I need. As long as I have him, I'm fine. That is not true. And Paul says as much here. We need one another too. We need the body of Christ because contentment is nursed in the nursery of community. The Christian who tries to make it alone will never be content. I'm going to have more to say about that, by the way, next week when we look at the very last part of Philippians that we didn't cover back in the month of March. But I'll let you find out about that next week. So far, what we've said is that contentment is born of adversity and nursed in community. But now here's the part I want to dwell on. It is sustained by the sovereignty of God. What does that mean, the sovereignty of God? Well, here's an illustration that I think communicates my meaning. Back in the day when laws weren't so so rigid about kids being strapped into car seats and seat belts and so on, many of you who are my age and older, you remember those days? My wife and I had a station wagon. We often let down the back seats, and our kids, when they were little, just rolled back and forth, back in the, back, the way back. Boom, 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 you know. That, we would deliberately turn sharp edges just so our kids could, ah, you know, it'd be a roller coaster back there. We didn't worry about car seats back in that day. We didn't strap people in seat belts. I'm not advertising that, by the way. Don't take me literally here. That's just the way it was. Well, I remember when I was a small kid, one of my biggest thrills was when my dad said to me, you want to drive? I was a little guy, and I would sit on my dad's lap, and his foot would work the pedals, and I would hold on to the wheel. And I thought I was driving, you know. I wasn't driving. My dad had his hands just ready to go. And in fact, often he did. Here comes a police officer. He would knock me (laughs) side. And uh, a pothole in the road, a sharp turn coming up. My dad was right there. My dad was at the wheel. That's what I mean by the sovereignty of God. Our God is always at the wheel. The sovereignty of God speaks of God in eternity past, freely and unchangeably ordaining everything that happens. And this is one of God's core attributes his sovereignty, his, the way he has decreed all things, the way he has planned all things. He already knew before he created the universe exactly what needed to happen and when it needed to happen. A.W. Pink wrote a book about this called The Sovereignty of God. And in that book he said, this is the godness of God. Take sovereignty away and you don't have God anymore. The godness of God is his sovereignty. God foreordains everything that comes to pass, yet, and here's the mystery of it all, 
in such a way as not to be the author of sin and also not to take away our human responsibility. Now, that is a deep mystery. This summer, we're going to be preaching through honest answers to honest questions. One of your questions might want to be, explain that to me. (laughs) And we'll do our best. How do you put evil and God's decree together? That is a deep thing. But let me tell you, I'm so glad that it's part of his plan. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'd want to wake up tomorrow morning. God has sovereignly engineered all things, which gives all things purpose, which gives your life meaning and which gives heartache hope. Sovereignty speaks of God's absolute autonomy, his total independence to do as he pleases with his world, his wise and compassionate control over the actions of all of his creatures. In other words, God is in control. He is at the wheel. God is in charge. All of those ideas are what we mean God's by God's sovereignty. And Paul believed those things, you see. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, and that's why he can say in verse 13, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. I can endure all things because of God giving me strength. Do you hear the sheer audacity in that statement? The boldness, the confidence of the Apostle Paul? Here he is in prison, as I said a little bit earlier. He's uncertain what's going to happen to him. And yet he says, I'm solid. I'm, I'm, I'm stable. I'm secure because I know who God is. I know the godness of God. I know the sovereignty of God. And I'm safe in his hands. He's got his hands on the wheel of my life. And I can go forward knowing that. Paul reminds me a little bit, his situation that is, of the situation of uh, a pastor over in Iran right now. Some of you have been following the story of Pastor Yosef Nadarkhani. He is a Christian pastor imprisoned in Iran, a Muslim country, and he is unaware, I suppose, of what his fate's going to be. The reports are conflicting. Sometimes they say we're going to execute him. Sometimes they say they're not going to execute him. But whatever is going to happen, there he is in the same situation as the Apostle Paul. And I trust that Pastor Yosef also has discovered the secret of being content because of the sovereignty of God, even in pain. Paul has this attitude of contentment, even though he has to rely on the care of his fellow Christians living hundreds of miles away. All of his comforts have been stripped away. Even some of his colleagues on the outside, you remember chapter 1, are making Paul look bad. And yet he says, I can endure everything that comes my way through him who gives me strength. Where does that come from? It comes from a knowledge of the sovereignty of God, the fact that God ordains everything that happens. I read somewhere that somebody said this, and I quote, Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. Nothing can thwart his purposes. And nothing is beyond his control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. Do you know who said that? Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story very well. She was 18 years old. She was at the Chesapeake Bay. She took a dive. She thought the water was deep and it was very shallow. She hit the bottom and she snapped her neck. And from 18 years of age until now and until she dies, Johnny Tata is a quadriplegic. 
And yet she speaks of this sovereign purpose of God, even down to the accidents of life. She's written 50 books on disabilities and the Christian life and ministered to countless thousands of people around the world. She's an example of contentment sustained by the sovereignty of God. Let me show you in the Bible. I'm going to do this very rapidly. So if you are uh, not a quick note taker or if you just want to listen, that might be the best way to do it. What I want to do is do a quick survey and show you in the Bible the many ways we see the sovereignty of God. The verses will be on the screen. I'll tell you the ways in which God is sovereign as God tells us himself in the Bible. First of all, God is sovereign over nature. You can read these verses on your own. Not one sparrow, it says, will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Even down to the sparrow falling in some forest right now. It's part of God's counsel, part of God's plan. God is sovereign over the minutest details of our lives. It says that in Matthew 10, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. God is sovereign over the things that we usually call accidents or coincidences or chance. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the decisions and actions of political leaders. And that's good for us to know during an election year, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over the day we are born and the day we die. In Job chapter 1, it says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Do you see? God is instrumental in the birthing of people as well as in their dying. God is sovereign over the length of your life. That doesn't mean you don't stop. It doesn't mean you stop exercising. It doesn't mean that you stop eating right. But the truth is all the days ordained for you were written in God's book before one of them came to be. God has already planned out the length of your life. God is sovereign over natural disasters. Think about what Job said in Job chapter 2. The backstory of this is this. Let me give this to you real quick. Um, in the book of Job, Satan comes to God and says, See your servant Job. Do you think he's serving you for no reason at all? He's serving you for what he can get out of you, God. And so God says to Satan, okay, you've got permission to test him, but just don't touch Job. And so in Job chapter 1, you see that some enemies came in and stole some of Job's livestock. Uh, Fire of God, a lightning bolt, I presume, fell from heaven and struck Job's estate and killed some of his animals and servants. And then uh, a wind, a mighty wind swept through one day Job's house and it collapsed upon his ten kids, seven sons and three daughters, and all of them died. And so Job's wife comes to Job and he says, she says to him, curse God and die. And this is Job's reply. He says to his wife, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Notice what Job realizes there. Even though this is horrible tragedy, even though this is unspeakable sadness and loss for Job, he still is able to say, it's from the Lord. It must fit into some better plan, he's saying. It must be like these ingredients that by themselves taste horrible, but when mixed together by God's beautiful wisdom, they create something sweet. Job chapter 2. God is sovereign over human planning. 
You know, you and I make plans all the time, and that's okay. But it says in Proverbs 19, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is sovereign over the sinful actions of human beings. In Genesis 50, Joseph says, You intended, he's speaking to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is sovereign over the disabilities that many people have. God says to Moses in Exodus 4, Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Do you notice God is saying, I'm the one who brings these disabilities to be, that I've allowed them to happen for my glory. God is sovereign over the tragedies and losses that we suffer. Isaiah 45 says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Somehow they fit into God's decree. God is sovereign in our salvation. It says in Ephesians 1 that he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose you before you chose God. In other words, and of course, God was sovereign when the worst act of evil ever perpetrated upon planet Earth was done, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts 2, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. See, it's your fault that Jesus died. You hammered the nails. But all the while, it was part of my overall purpose. In short, quick survey, I know. But in short, the Bible says that God is sovereign over all things. God works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Here's my point. Paul got that. Paul understood these things, these truths from God's word. And they were like an anchor to his soul in a horrible time of life. It was his rock in a world of quicksand, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And it can be your rock as well. So what does this look like on a practical level? How can you tomorrow be thankful for the sovereignty of God? Well, let's suppose that you say to yourself someday, I hate my life. I hate who I am. I hate where I live. I hate what I have. See, you can battle discontent with verse 11. You can say with Paul, I'm learning. I might not be able to say I've learned, (laughs) but I am learning the secret of being content whatever the circumstances. God is using this affliction in my life to wean me away from the world and wed me more and more to God and to His heart. When you begin to feel overwhelmed with life's demands, with dirty diapers, with screaming babies, with bad health, with grief, with a marriage or a house that stinks or a job that you hate, whatever it is, verse 13, you can, do, you can battle discontent with that verse. You can say, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When you grow discouraged because things haven't worked out as you had hoped they would, battle discontent with verse 18. I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. When you're tempted to worry about tomorrow, that's, that's what kills me, okay? I'm a big worrier. 
when you're tempted to worry about tomorrow, battle discontent with verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And of course, when you look at your sin and you look at that sin and you see you failed again and again and again and when you wonder, how in the world can God love me? How can he accept me? Battle discontent with verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See, these ver- beloved friends, these verses are not here just to read and say, great, goodbye. These verses are in the Bible so that you can take them and do battle with them. I beg of you, remember these verses and use them as weapons in the fight for contentment because it is a fight. Battle discontent with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Forrest Gump, one of my favorite movies. He was only partly right. You remember what he said, right? He said, Mama always said that life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's true. But that's only half the truth of, of divine sovereignty. It is true. We don't know what we get. But the truth that God has communicated to us today is that God does know what you're going to get. And he carefully and skillfully and wisely and compassionately put every single event in your box. And those events are going to happen at just the right time. He knows what you can take. He knows what you can handle. He gives you what he knows is best for you. He meets your need. So trust him. Trust him and move from day to day battling discontent. He sent Jesus to you to take away your sin. How much more confident will you be that he can also take care of you day by day and bring you home with joy? Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us today a little bit more about contentment. Father, we struggle with this. I do. My friends do. We struggle because sometimes, Father, it doesn't make any sense what you're doing. Sometimes we don't understand how these chocolates got in that box to begin with. And Lord, we don't like them. Some of them are bitter. But Lord, we take hope today. We take hope from the knowing that you have planned our lives with love and care. And you know exactly what's going to happen. Your hands never leave the wheel. Unlike my father, you are always always on that wheel. And so, Father, we praise you this morning that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.